0: Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. It has been an insane two weeks of action in the world of NHRA Mellow Yellow Championship drag racing with events in Charlotte, North Carolina and Dallas, Texas. There's been hole shots, there's been upsets, there's been red lights, and there's been movement in the point standings both at the top and in the middle of the top ten of those racers chasing the NHRA Championship through the countdown process. We have a lot to talk about, a lot to catch up on, and a lot of great insider information to share with you this week. We have Jack. Beckman and we have Jed Coughlin Jr. as our guests on the show. They're going to talk about their triumphs and their struggles during this countdown process and how they plan to capture a championship over the last two races of the season. Las Vegas is next but we're not even thinking about that. Let's look backwards for a little bit and get up to speed on what happened in Dallas and Charlotte and set you up for the final run to the championship. Hello and welcome to this edition of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Uh, I laugh because just making my notes for this thing, it has been just berserker mode here the last couple of weeks. I apologize for not having a podcast last week, Uh, unfortunately, I guess, or not, depending on how you look at it. Uh, The push to Monday eliminations in Charlotte really tightened up everybody's schedule as far as getting from one place to the next and simply did not have time. To get one cranked out, so we're going to double down a little bit this week. Not necessarily in the length of the show, but certainly in some of the content we're going to be talking about. And uh, it, 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 the conversation has to start in Charlotte, right? I mean, how can it not? That race, ten hole shots over the course of the day, multitude of red lights as well. Lewis Bloom went into his uh, bag of knowledge and came out with the fact that the most hole shots in a single race in NHRA history was twelve, and we had ten. And they came from all over the place. You name the category, people were whole shouting each other. We had red light action there as well. Um, it all speaks to what this part of the year is. It speaks to a countdown that is shaking out to be one of the most interesting ever. And I realize that not everybody is a fan of this format of this time of the year. But it is very difficult to argue with the results of what we have seen so far and what we continue to see week in and week out since this started in Maple Grove, Pennsylvania. Uh, Why? Well, just look at what's happened. I mean, last year we saw Steve Torrance go on the most dominating run in the history of the countdown, of the playoffs. He was undefeated. We watched a runaway train there. We did see the Pro Stock Motorcycle Championship come down to Pomona. We did see the Funny Car Championship come down to Pomona. We did see Tanner Gray lock up the Pro Stock Championship uh, effectively in Vegas. So it took a little drama out of the mix there. But when we look at it now, there's no way – Really, anybody can lock anything up until Pomona. That points-and-a-half thing is big. And it's big because it'll be a lifeline for some racers. It's big because it may be the, the doomsday scenario for others. But uh, it is just phenomenal to see what's happened here. Now, it is immensely stress. It has to be immensely stressful for the competitors. We'll talk to Jack and Jeg about that uh, once we get going here. But the reality of the situation is for fans and for people who are uh, – you know, fully enveloped in the world of NHRA drag racing, like I am, and likely like you are. Uh, wow. What are you going to say? You know, if we look at where the standings are at at this moment, following Dallas, the top four in pro stock bikes separated by 99 points. Heinz on top, Kravick in fourth. The top four in pro stock separated by 68 points. The top three separated by 40 points. Right, I should say two, three, and four. Separated by 40 points. Jay Coughlin currently sits third. In Funny Car. Top four. Separated by 112. Top three. Separated by 74 points. Jack Beckman currently second. 70 points behind Robert Height. And in Top Fuel. From number one to number four. A spread of only 71 points. From number one to number two. 33 points. And we'll talk about how that is incredible. After what we saw in Dallas in a few minutes. Going back to Charlotte. You know, one of the things that is defining the countdown in 2019, in my opinion, is the fact that so many of the so many strong cars, there are there, there were no uh, there were no unworthy entrance into the countdown in any category. I could say that with with uh, some purpose and authority, because when we've watched what's happened over the last several weeks, we see that these cars that, you know, eight, nine cars, seven, eight, nine points cars all of a sudden are jumping up and beaten one and two or two and three seated points cars. And that's what's keeping this so interesting, because when those lower cars, those let's call them six through ten, five through ten cars are able to jump up and whack somebody who's second or third in the points, it prevents anyone from running away from this thing. We, We were used to seeing some runaway action last year. Tanner was fantastic in the countdown. Steve was fantastic in the countdown. They did the things that they needed to do to win. JR was fantastic, and the countdown height was. So we had some two-horse races that came down to the end, but we're seeing four-horse races go to the end here. And to me, that's even more interesting because of the additional variables involved, the additional risk and reward, if you will, with those extra cars that are, uh, that are still in contention. Part of the fun and the fandom side of things here has been watching some racers debut. Of course, Justin Ashley. I mean, come on. Justin Ashley debuts in Charlotte which is where he planned to debut, comes out with a car he calls the Influencer, a top-fuel dragster. Had the Strutmaster sponsorship all over that thing. And he's cutting 40 lights, not by accident. He did it multiple times in a row. He attacked Austin Proc on the starting line, and I mean that in the in the figurative sense. He didn't you know, hit him with a tire iron, but maybe in some ways he did with an old 41 reaction time. Proc was still great. I think he was somewhere in the 50s, but still... The 40 he dropped on Mike Salinas to start with was a jaw dropper, and then he did it again. And then the run after that, he was in good shape until the car fell out from underneath him. So uh, Justin Ashley, an auspicious debut in Charlotte. We will see Justin Ashley in the last couple of races of the year as well. He didn't want to start earlier than this because he wants to be a Rookie of the Year candidate in 2020. If you run too many races, you're removed from that rookie status. So he is going to run enough races to... uh, Get his feet wet, but not enough races to disqualify him as a Rookie of the Year program. So the situation is even more interesting when we start to add in some of the cars that maybe are struggling. And it's tough to not talk about Antron Brown because we're waiting on Antron to win his first race of the year. He's been on a a longer streak than he's ever had really in the category for a season win. He has never had a winless season at Top Fuel. He has two opportunities left to do it. Back in 2012, he got his first win at Pomona. So it is not unprecedented for him to win at the final race of the year to get his first one. But not the situation that they ever planned on being in. And, you know, we've had AB on the show a couple times and talked to him. And the reality is that car has been, during the regular season, was hanging in there. Uh, Obviously, he was, at times, very high up in the points, made the countdown with no problem but just has not been able to turn the corner, and, and we continue to see that car smoke the tires in the countdown. We do not see Entron doing untoward things on the starting line. We don't see him acting desperate inside the race car, but we do see that car, unfortunately for him, on, on race days, going around or two and then blowing the tires off or blowing the tires off earlier than that, like the case was in St. Louis. So um, will they be able to get a wrangle handle on that thing by the end of the season? Who knows? I'm sure Leah Pritchett would like the help. She's in pretty good shape. She does have a fighting chance at this thing, although it is a bit of a waning fighting chance as she is not, you know, not within that group of cars. It's only seventy or so points back, but she is within striking distance, especially because of points and a half in Pomona. For Antron, it is a uh, it is a very limited dream at this point for him to win a championship. But they would certainly Don Schumacher Racing would certainly like that car to be a viable blocker, a viable runner to hopefully stay away from Leah in qualifying in their first round and then work the opposite side of the ladder trying to knock off some of those competitors. We saw Steve Torrance and Doug Coletta make the final rounds in Charlotte. We saw that scene play out again. We saw the two cars that I think a lot of people are expecting to come down to the wire in top fuel, race each other. It was Steve Torrance getting the win. Steve Torrance uh, loves Charlotte, North Carolina. That team is just beyond dominant there. He is. That is, uh, let's see, the fourth time in a row he's won there. He won four wide, two wide. Now he won four wide, two wide again. So basically a two-year running streak of race wins at Charlotte, no matter the format for Steve Torrance. We saw in Pro Stock Motorcycle, we saw we saw Karen Stoffer kind of lose some of the magic in the semifinal and final round of Pro Stock Bike. Um, Karen Stoffer, who has been and continues to be a class leader in reaction time someone who has just been a sharpshooter up there in the starting line fell way off the bike was like a hundred and then hundred something reaction time in the semifinals and finals and um, she has a very fast bike she certainly wasn't laying back but she has not yet not yet fully recovered even through Dallas to that double-o life that she was leading for several races and um the fact that uh, that double O you know reputation has certainly earned her some round wins from people going red and and reacting you don't want to have that soften up so it'd be interesting to see when we get to Vegas if Karen can recapture some of that starting line magic she is currently second in the pro stock bike points trailing Andrew Hines by 81 it is the widest first to second margin of any category but it is still ultimately scalable if Andrew Hines has some issues or if Andrew Hines runs into a first-round opponent after not qualifying well, that can take him out. That would be the dream scenario for either Karen Stouffer or Jerry Savoy, and even Eddie Krawick, who's fourth. Eddie Krawick's not going to root against his teammate, but Eddie Kraywick is certainly not going to shy away from the ability to win a championship. Kraywick made the final round, and Dallas became up short to Jerry Savoie. We'll talk about that in a minute. So it's probably time to transition to talk about the Dallas race that uh, just happened, ended uh, just a couple days ago as I sit and make this podcast. And let's start with Pro Stock Motorcycle. Jerry Savoy gets the job done. And it's gone from, over the course of the season, Suzuki riders maybe outriding the Harley-Davidson riders at times, outriding the EBR riders at times, to now just flat outrunning them. I mean, we look at we look at elapsed times here, and all of a sudden, Jerry Savoy and Karen Stouffer are on top of two just viciously quick motorcycles and the Harley Davidson team has won in the form of Andrew Hines' bike, which has been the most consistent of the bunch. Angel has had her struggles continue, and Eddie's bike just doesn't quite and has not quite over the course of the year performed to the level that it, that Andrew's has. So they're still looking for something out of Eddie's bike. They're still looking for Angel to really kind of find her comfort zone on top of her motorcycle. She's qualified better. She's had. Just weird luck on race day. She's had bikes move to the center line. She's had bikes do some untoward things. But as a three bike team, they've never quite fully, at all three at once, hit their stride. Meanwhile, I think it's fair to say that Karen and Jerry have. Jerry was 0 uh, 12 and 004. 0 12 in the semis and 004 in the finals against Eddie Krawit. Brought the absolute heat. Greg Anderson's story at Pro Stock in Dallas was bizarre and triumphant for him. You know, he qualifies uh, on the bottom half of the field. The car just, again, just doesn't look good. Uh, And it hadn't looked good in a while. He wins two races on the Western Swing, goes to three straight finals, and then it was like just nothing worth talking about since then. And then Dallas happens. And when Dallas happens, he qualifies so poorly he has to race Jason Line in the first round. And... This brought up, as it always does, a discussion on team orders, on team direction, on how this is going to work. Now, this is a discussion that happened before the race. A bunch of us sitting around having dinner saying, I got I got a hard time believing that the KB guys are going to crush their potentially crushed championship hopes here in the first round. But you know what? They went out and raced heads up to their credit, and it needs to be credited to them. There was not a, okay, pal, Jason, you're uh, doing better than I am in the points, so um, I'm not going to make this full pull. That wasn't it at all. I mean, Greg Anderson came up there and just clubbed Jason over the head and outran him, and that was it. And that was the story of his day. He was driving like a man possessed. He made it to the final round against Jeg. And... uh, (laughs) And he beat him. Uh, it, it was it was unbelievable. It's one of the things I want to talk to Jeg about, not the loss, so to speak, but the fact that Greg Anderson seems to have uh, found his way out of whatever uh, doldrums he was in. And the big question, though, is does he have enough time to actually put himself into the championship discussion? Does this same scenario play out in Pomona if, who knows, if Greg qualifies poorly, Jason doesn't, and Jason is either the points leader or Jason is very close to leading the points? Does that happen at the final race, the way it did here? Jason Lyne now 68 points out of first place. We move into the funny car category, Jack Beckman. Beats Ron Caps in the first round. That um, was a very serious blow to Ron Caps' championship hopes just because the way that everything's bunched up up top and really after the uh, first four cars, it falls off pretty mightily. So it was a battle of teammates. It's a battle of attrition. It's a battle of uh, do or die this time of the year. And for Jack Beckman, he did. And Jack Beckman, as a result of that, came out of Dallas only 70 points behind Robert He's A mere four points ahead of John Forrest, who's in third. But Jack Beckman is in, is in good shape. Uh, seventy points at this point of the year with the level of predictability we have had, you'd certainly want to be seventy points better than you are than than seventy points back. But really, it's that is not the biggest hill in the world to climb. The fact that Robert Height went out in the third round on a red light uh, certainly helped Jack's cause. If if Robert had gone on to win the race and extend that lead, things would look a little bit more a little bit more uh, dire. Let's say. But as of right now, because of that third-round loss, uh, Jack Beckman only 70 points out of first. Matt, Matt Hagan won the race moves to the number four spot in the points, uh, 112 back. Again, not impossible, but we're verging on the eh, marginal at this point. You need some real, you need some real magic to happen, and it would be good magic for Matt Hagan and just playing down bad voodoo for anybody else ahead of him to make up. Uh, what is essentially six rounds at this point. You can make some of it up in qualifying, but you're really going to need some bad stuff to happen to those uh, to those folks at the top of the sheet. And frankly, that's the stuff that has kept this interesting, those cars. I mean, Ron Caps, even though he may be uh, out of championship contention, not 100% mathematically yet, but perhaps using logic, says that he's in a tough spot. That's a guy who's going to thrash and try to beat on whoever he can to, to just finish his year strong. And that's what ultimately is going to dictate – other people's success. If Ron Capp's uh, racing angry out there in the second round, beats a Robert Hype, beats a Jack Beckman, beats a John Forrest, well, then uh, then we really got some storylines to talk about because it muddies the waters. And then Top Fuel, which was just absolutely bat poop crazy in Dallas. There was no way to talk about Top Fuel without just, just focusing on the first round in Dallas. Austin Prock beats Doug Coletta. You think, up oh, this guy's done. Wrong. Sean Reed beats Steve Torrance. So both Collette and Torrance go out in the first round, and the margin stays 33 points. Lee Calloway beats Mike Salinas in the first round. Salinas, if he had been able to get around Calloway, was in a position to really make a run at some of these top performers. And then, of course, Jordan Vannegrift beats Clay Milliken in the first round, which wasn't the hugest upset, but it was it was an eye-opener. Milliken is a, a countdown car, and I think it's always worthy to note when a countdown car does lose that early on a Sunday. Jordan Vandegrift proceeds to go to his first final round to race Billy Torrance and let me tell you something, Jordan Vandegrift had Billy Torrance by the short hairs off the starting line. Torrance had a problem getting the car off the starting line he was three tenths of a second on the tree billy 's a consistent strong lever. There was something going on in the cockpit that certainly got his attention in the wrong direction but Jordan vandegriff just uh without any sort of which with impunity let 's call it that leaves the starting line and it was visually that 's a big margin and if you watch enough drag racing that is a big enough margin that you can you can visually see it and hear it because it 's womp womp when both cars leave with that uh, with that level of spread. Anyway, uh, Vandergriff appeared to be cruising to an easy victory, and then the bottom fell out for him at about 330 feet. Car goes silent, bunch of raw fuel out of the pipes, and Billy goes streaking by for the win, continuing to uh, advance his cause. However far back he may be in top fuel, he is still part of the program, and yes, it's only 71 points that he is out of top fuel. Brittany Forrest is 46 back. So she's two rounds out. Doug's a round and a half, and Billy's basically four rounds, three and change. Let's call it three and change rounds out of first place with two races to run. He calls his car a clone of Steve's car, and it's tough to argue that because when we watch them run, they're typically within a couple hundreds, if not a couple thousandths of a seconds of, second of each other. And that's what makes those two things so entertaining to watch. And it validates how good the crews are that service those machines to be able to make them so consistent and good. What do I think is going to happen in Vegas? I think it's going to be more of the same. I think we're going to see, if anything, it becomes, a, it becomes an interesting study in pressure and lack of pressure. So when you have, uh, I'm going to use his name as an example. I'm not counting him out, but I'd like to use a well-known example. So let's, let's go to Iran Caps. Let's go to Iran Caps who isn't exactly in a premier position to, to contest for a title yet. Again, not eliminated, but in, in tough straights. Versus somebody who is at the top three. Versus somebody who is within, oh, I don't know, a couple of rounds of first place. Where does the pressure on that matchup late on a Sunday lie? Does it lie on the shoulders of Ron Caps? I would argue it doesn't. And that's why these cars that are deep down in the points become so dangerous at this point right now. Because when they start to meet up with these top one, top two, top three cars, all the – it this becomes their world finals. Okay, this becomes their world championship. There is, in drag racing, a satisfaction level, and in any sport – a satisfaction level of stopping somebody else from getting something that you can't have yourself think of it in any sport look at week you know week 14 15 of the NFL when those bubble playoff teams are, are typically have these just horrible garbage matchups and a week uh, without fail you'll find that some of those crummy teams in the last couple of weeks of the season will ratchet it up will find another gear and for their own pride, Will jump up and whack somebody in the head that they didn't expect or didn't see it coming, and that is the situation that we're going to watch play out over the over the last two races. Vegas, I think, less so than Pomona, because Pomona will be an absolute study in pressure. And when we talk about that pressure of Pomona, you know, not to go too far ahead of the schedule. Remember Robert Hyde a couple years ago when he when he won the championship and had. You know, the car like didn't qualify until the last session. It was running like hot garbage. They had a crash. It went into the sand. He gets in a backup car. He ends up winning the race. He lived the lives of 10 men over the span of 3 days. To me, that is an, uh, a man who is incapable of being rattled. Now, I say that after he had a reaction time of negative 188 in the third round in Texas. What spurred that? I have no idea. That is early. And was it trying to anticipate the tree? Who knows? But his uh, 188 red light inspired like an 0-11 reaction time out of Matt Hagen, who clearly reacted off the noise of Robert Haidt leaving the starting line. But when we get to Vegas, we're going to see two camps develop, in my opinion. We're going to see the leader camp that is trying to protect and or forge ahead of where they are incrementally. And we're going to see the angry racers, the angry bees that are out there just to give them a sting, stop them in their tracks. We have Justin Ashley back in Las Vegas. We have some uh, some interesting names that are going to be at that race. And it adds to this whole situation that's gone on throughout the 2019 season of new people showing up, of new cars showing up with the promise of more events to be run in the future. The news of Alexis DeJoria making a full-time comeback to Nitro Funny Car in 2020 came out just before the Charlotte race. It was somewhat controversial in the sense that that it'll be Del Worsham and Nicky Bonifani leaving Coletta Motorsports to operate that team. We understand they're taking some of the crew with them. We don't know what this does for Sean Langdon's ride next year. I don't think it does anything good for it. Hopefully he does have a ride, if not with Coletta, somewhere else. Global Electronic Technology, not sure what their agreement is with Coletta Motorsports regarding sponsorship. Are Steve and Samantha Bryson going to stay in drag racing? All these questions remain to be answered. One question that doesn't remain to be answered, though, is the intensity of competition that will come in Vegas and Pomona, and if you've been paying attention to the countdown, I think you'll agree that uh, we have not seen anything yet. I don't foresee another 10-hole-shot-style race coming up, but I do foresee another race where we're going to watch some competitors rise mentally to the occasion, some competitors stumble mentally at uh, under the pressure, and a third group of racers who are just there to screw up everybody's weekend, and that's what makes this fun. So let's get our show kicked off with a man who has won a slew of championships over the course of his career. He is one of the greatest pro stock racers of all time. He is a man who has won NHRA national events in seven different eliminators, and he's a guy whose countdown started off a bit rocky, but certainly has made a turn to the positive over the last couple of races. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jeg Coughlin to the NHRA Insider Podcast. Jeg, how you doing today? I'm doing great how you doing today Brian Doing pretty well I appreciate you taking some time To uh, catch up with us I know you guys are always Keeping busy out there at the uh, at the family business So to speak so thanks for uh, carving out A few minutes to talk pro stock
1: Hey my pleasure uh, It's always nice to chat about uh, racing And naturally always about pro stock So sounds good to me
0: so obviously we got the final two races of the season coming up, uh, Vegas and Pomona. Uh, you had a nice weekend. Um, you had a nice weekend in Dallas come up just a little bit short in the final round to Greg, kind of a classic uh, final round confrontation that we've been watching for 20 years between the two of you guys. Um, I yeah, guess I get- talk to me about whats talk to me about what the kind of turn was in Dallas because to me and I think to a lot of people, you and the car both looked happier than they had in the last couple races.
1: Well, I mean, we've had a, a very good race car, uh, in the countdown, you know, we just have had, had some, maybe not the best of racing luck on Sundays. Uh, so sure. we're qualified. Well, I think maybe second at, uh, second at the last two for sure. First at Dallas. Um, so, uh, you know, the performance has been there and, and on Sundays we've just, uh, had one thing or another, uh, hold us back. You know, the, the first race to the countdown, I think I was, Red in the semifinals by a thousandth or, or yeah, two. Just uh,
0: super tight. Yeah.
1: yeah. And uh, and then I was ironically on the flip side of that round too it's at St. Louis. And then uh, the next race in Charlotte was a couple thousand red in uh, the second round again there. So, um, you know, we're definitely trying to race as aggressive as we can. We certainly don't want to pencil ourselves out of any round uh, in red lights. We'll do that real quick because the only uh, shot you have at that point in time is if your opponent, uh, you know, hits, yeah, you know, steps, out, steps <laughs> outside of bounds and then the next 1,320 feet, which in pro stock happens about one out of every yeah. 200 rounds. So, uh, uh, you know, your, your percentages are very, uh, very slim to win a turn at red. And, and you know, if you look at the, my history in the class of pro stock and in, in racing in general, um, you know, a voice, uh, tried to keep it on the green side and actually as aggressive as you can. And, and, uh, in, in that respect, I didn't get away from it, get away with it. Uh, in two of the first three races of the countdown. And then this past weekend in Dallas, uh, again, nearly ran the table, yeah. I, you know, through qualifying, we were low for, uh, three of the four sessions there. Uh, I think Greg was low. The, the, uh, third session Q3 on Saturday morning with an outstanding run. Um, uh, we're all still stressing our heads. I think they were too, but, um, and, and then come Sunday, we're running pretty quick again and, and had some things go our way. I mean, you know, you don't wish anything upon your competitors, but you know, Richie Stevens had a parachute fallout first round. Yeah. Uh, performance wise, we certainly, uh, uh, you know, on paper had him covered. Uh, and then after the fact, uh, running low of the round probably would have been in good shape anyways. But, uh, uh, you know, that was, that was a, uh, kind of a fortunate break that uh, fell our way for in And it's you know, uh, yeah, and
0: it's interesting to me how how this stuff kind of shakes out because what we saw, you know, we saw Erica have some really tough luck over the span of a couple races, and then things kind of shifted back into her favor um, on all fronts. And I think we're looking on almost the same situation as you, maybe not as drastic as hers was, especially with stuff like the Indy loss in the final. But how important is right. it? You know, how important is it to have both of those cars performing like they are right now? Because I feel like. As as good as Elite Motorsports is, it, it's an even scarier outfit when we look and see those two cars, yours and erica's kind of pacing the field that uh, as they had the last couple yeah. of races.
1: And you can't throw out Hartford in that uh, in that mix. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, uh, he, he's been uh, you know top five, pretty much qualifier all year, and also uh, you know number two in points right now. And, uh, Alex has been in a, in a similar position. He's he's uh, had had his fate to flip the other way in the countdown, sure. but uh, no, as a team, we've been extremely solid. Um, you know, we, we went through some, some peaks and valleys throughout the, the regular season, uh, the first 18 or, um, uh, sorry, uh, what do we got 12 events in the, in the sure. regular season?
0: Yeah. For you guys. Yes. And,
1: uh, and, they uh, really felt like through some of, uh, you know, the valleys we were building for, for the countdown. And as, as we saw uh, the countdown come around, we've, we've been strong as a team period. Um, you know, like we've already talked about my success in the first couple. And, um, but when you look at, uh, Matt and, and Erica, they've been extremely strong and it's, it is important back to the question. Uh, it is important to have, you know, our, our teams and our cars complement one another, um, you know, to feed off one another for qualifying. If one car makes an error in qualifying, you know, you, kind of have that data to, to back it up. And I think that's why we're seeing such uh, just unbelievable performance in pro stock right now, because, you know, elite, for example, has five or six cars at a race, all sharing, uh, sharing data. Naturally uh, KB is in the same boat with five or six cars at just about every race. And, um, you know, when you get to round two, um, yeah, there's very little, very little performance difference between uh, the eight competitors there, and it it gets down to a tuners race and, and a drivers race.
0: Yeah, the cream rises pretty quickly in Pro Stock. I'd say even more, you know, dramatically on many weekends than than other categories. Uh, that being said, you know, races like Charlotte that were just, I mean, that was off the wall for a, for a fan entertainment value. What we saw happen in hey. Charlotte with the with a with the hole shots and just the lunacy. I mean, it's that's the type of stuff people show up to see on Sunday. I, I know it doesn't make a comfortable racing environment for the drivers, but I could. I tell you it's fun to watch from <laughs> worsen <in. laughs>
1: Absolutely. So and that's what that's what drag racing is.
0: Oh, absolutely, it is. Uh, you know that the unpredictable is is what makes this, in my opinion, anyway, uh, the most fun thing in the world to watch because you really don't know what's going to happen next. And you know if we can if we can step back into the time machine, um, you know, go back to '98, your kind of rookie season, four wins, you end up number two in the points, win the rookie of the year. What stands out from you, you know, twenty-one years later? Uh, what stands out to you as a as the major difference in the category, as far as the competition goes? Mechanically, of course, there has been changes, but in terms of the competition level from '98 to today, is there any comparison?
1: No, I wouldn't. I mean, yeah, there, there's some comparison, but I think you know what we've seen is just uh, is a huge. Uh, the teams have all expanded, uh, multi-car teams. Yeah. You know, I think in. Ninety-eight. there was a couple of multi-car teams without without question, but there was probably 10, you know, there's at least a dozen crew chiefs uh, amongst the 16 qualified minimum. I would say there was probably eight or nine engine builders within the 16 qualified cars in 1998. Uh, you know, fast forward to today and there's, you know, maybe four or five engine builders and, you know, maybe three or four crew chief banks, if you will. So, um, that that is a big change you know from a driving perspective you know a huge change uh, which came a few years later was going from the incandescent uh, incandescent bulbs in LEDs, the christmas street yeah. to, the, to the more current leds and and that was probably uh one of the bigger things that uh i'll say jokingly uh picks my pocket you know because i was typically <laughs> typically uh, leading the pack in reaction time average uh and, and when you looked at the whole class average i was uh, you know, around two and a half to three hundredths uh, better than the average. Where today, you know, if you're in the top couple in in uh, the class average, or in the class, and you look at the class average, you might be less than a hundredth uh, better than that whole average. So it's uh, that that was a huge, uh, you know, technological change that uh, obviously was inevitable and uh, and something you you transition to and you, and you learn.
0: You know, we, we move forward in your career to the year 2000 and, and arguably, you know, you've had a lot of great years. But, man, you come out, you guys win six out of the first seven races and just, you know, really run away with it uh, in terms of the in terms of the championship that year. And what is it like when you get on a team and you get on a roll like that? Because we really typically don't see that anymore in pro stock. Obviously, we see spurts of it. Right. We, we see Greg Anderson have a really good Western swing. But, man, to go six out of seven is almost like unfathomable in the in the year 2019. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it, it is more difficult, uh, without question. Again, um, you know, I, I think back then it was it was amazing. And my father, Jake, was our team manager, our, my crew chief, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he made a bold prediction going into that season. His goal was not to abort one run in 2000. And we weren't a team that did a whole lot of uh, testing outside of the national events. And when we did go testing, you know, his, his idea of testing was, okay, we've mentally prepared, we've physically prepared everything for testing. We go, we have it set up exactly the way we feel like it's best to run. It goes out and runs, in his opinion, what it was supposed to run, and you damn near load the thing up and leave. <laughs> and uh, so we've traveled you know, 1,200 miles with you know 20 people and a couple of rigs. And we made maybe four, four runs total (laughs) between two cars, but then we go right to Pomona and, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, run right in the mix of things and qualifying. And, and by the end of the end of the weekend, you're challenging for a race win. Uh, that, that was a, a very fun year just because of the way, uh, his goal, one of his goals was to not abort a single run. And, uh, I cannot find in my, uh, my hard drive here in my head one <laughs> red in uh in in the year two thousand and and the result was certainly uh uh you know second to none. I mean we were just building on building on success each and every week and uh as you mentioned uh had, had a year that was really uh not been seen by many others in the sports yeah. uh it, in, in years.
0: One of the one of the neatest things, uh, you know, we you you guys in the Jake's car, uh, the Jake's Camaro, carry an onboard camera, which we love. You know, we love the onboards because it's really fun, especially mm-hmm. in Pro Stock, to watch you guys and girls go to work. But one of the things I find most fascinating about you um, that sets you apart in my mind from other drivers is the is the communication immediately, and I'm talking the car is still on the racetrack, following a run back <laughs> to the starting line, and it is. It's it's interesting to me because it's almost like a road racing type of thing. Like I've been around road racing a little bit and I've and I've listened to drivers talk about their cars and I've listened to stock car drivers talk about their cars, but I very rarely if ever hear another drag racer talk about their car back to the starting line like you do and with the specificity you do. So where did that come from and where did it start?
1: You know, I got to give credit to to my pop again, Jake Senior. He was he was always challenging my brothers and I whether we're racing uh you know, our street car, national trail raceway on a, on a Sunday, Sunday or later in a bracket car, you know, more of a chassis car like super gas car or a dragster, uh, et cetera, et cetera. was just always had questions about the run. And, and, and I know what he was, what he was a, he was interested in what we felt genuinely, but also, uh, what that did was build, uh, you know, kind of our own little database in our mind and in our seats and, you know, and in our, in our vision of what, uh, of what did transpire and it, it made you think, it made you analyze. And, um, you know, as you fast forward, you know, into the mid nineties, into the late nineties, when onboard computers became, um, a thing of, of opportunity with like race pack joining. Um, and you looked at the printouts. Now you could kind of put your thoughts with paper, yeah. uh, and later with computer screen. And, um, uh, and that, proved to be extremely valuable for us because, you know, all these modern technologies don't always work. And, uh, you know, today in 2019, it's very rare that, uh, you know, you don't get a reading from your race pack or from the digital ignition system that's kind of a backup to your race pack. So you're you're almost uh, duplicated there. But, uh, you know, we won the spring nationals, I think, in 1998 or 1999. I don't remember the year. And we didn't have a computer first round. Huh. And so my, da- my dad and I just kind of, you know, he, we sat down and he's like, okay, tell me again what you what you felt and what you think you heard and or saw. And, you know, we went through the run and, you know, and he knows what he saw and, and he can kind of, he was a mastermind that could, could uh, put the pieces of the puzzle together and turn them and spin them and say, okay, I, I like, uh, I feel like I've got this, put together and we went out and ran the second round low and behold, the son of a gun didn't work again. Uh, so, so there we are, uh, you know, sitting in the lounge, uh, just the two of us again, kind of, uh, debriefing in, in a, in a normal way that we always had, yeah. but in a more, in a more, uh, in a specific or calculated way, because we really needed the information and needed it to be accurate and, uh, ended up winning the race that day with the race pack. It did finally work in the final round, uh, which was, too late to use any data anyways and and uh but it was just another neat story and you know feather I think that I can uh attribute to my father cause uh you know, he, he was uh one heck of a uh of, of a racer and and one heck of a crew chief uh, wasn't anything about uh, the cars that he didn't understand uh, and or could contribute to uh, whether it be with a mastermind like Dick Maskin or crew chiefs like Gary Pierman or a driver like myself. I mean, you could always uh, triangulate uh, with the best of them and, and uh, usually make something a little bit better.
0: Yeah, well, and clearly, you know, with the success that not – obviously not just you, but your entire brotherhood of, of brothers have had cool. in the sport of drag racing, it's it's so unique to me. And, you know, it's almost like we take it for granted about a little bit, those of us that aren't in your family, almost take for granted just how how good and how deep the talent pool is there. But it, but it isn't – it actually is a cultivated thing, right? And, and what we're talking about is exactly the way it gets cultivated because your dad was so hands-on and interested in what was going on, and had an expectation for you guys that it wasn't—it was fun and it was an activity and it was a way to be together. But it was also something you were going to take very seriously, and that's not you—that's everybody, right?
1: Right. so no, I totally agree. And third generation is uh, looking to be in a very similar foot as well
0: yeah i mean you got the one stock car guy in the family which kind of bums me out but you know maybe we can get him back sooner rather than later
1: <laughs> it's fun no, no it's fun. great you know, no it we,
0: totally is good
1: we hang a left at the end of a drag strip every now and then uh but no, it, in all seriousness uh you know racing is racing and uh, yeah. whether it's got a you know two or four wheels and, and some kind of performance to it we're, we're into it
0: so uh, let's talk about what's going to happen here. In the last couple of races, you're 65 points out of first. Uh, you have, you know, you have turned this win Vegas and win Pomona trick before. You did it 12 years ago. Um, not right. necessarily saying you have to win both of them because of the because of the double points in in Pomona. But you know, when I look at that list, you are chasing a teammate and you are chasing a fel- uh, two teammates really because of Matt and Erica. And yep. you know how much how much of this is going to depend on obviously a lot of it depends on your own performance, but how much of this depends on, depends on taking advantage of somebody else slipping on a banana peel? Well,
1: it's, uh, you can't control anything outside of your own, your own cockpit or your own pit area. Um, so in, in our case, you know, you know, Ricky and I've already had some, you know, strategizing and some conversation on like, much like we did going into Dallas, you know, kind of a do or die weekend for us, uh, to kind of keep our title hopes at least, uh, with, with any kind of hopes to it. Um, and we've already talked a little bit about Vegas and going into that event. And, and, um, you know, we can't count on, on weekends like we just had at Dallas where, uh, you know, line goes out round one, Erica went out round two, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, our goal is just to get out and do what we love to do first off. And that is, you know, make good quality runs uh, from decisions in the pit area to decisions on track to, you know, driving down the racetrack. And, and, uh, you know, that's a heck of a lot easier said than done right. putting all those variables and moving pieces together for just a six second splash down a quarter mile. But uh, that is what we love to do. And, uh, and, uh, and so going into Vegas, we are, we're poised to, uh, you know, to be, Come out swinging uh, for Q one on Friday. See if we can't, uh, you know, earn just about every point that we mm-hmm. uh, we legitimately can. Uh, we're not going to challenge a national record, that is for sure. But uh, yeah. the rest of the points are, are definitely on the table to uh, to be able to achieve. And and uh, we know that uh, the red car is sitting uh, less than twenty feet from. Uh, from my passenger door to, to her driver door is less than 20 feet. It's going to be a front running car. We know that, uh, the KV cars, we know that McGehee, we know that, uh, anyone, any one of the, the teams uh, can challenge for, for all those points through Friday and Saturday and, and, uh, but come Sunday, that's naturally, uh, you know, that's, that's the go time and, um, and that's the fun day. So, uh, uh, that's, that's the day that, uh, we look forward to Ricky and I both and, and the, and the guys working on the, on the car. And so uh, it's just a matter of, you know, kind of setting things up, you know, as we move into the weekend, uh, far before we get there for Friday, having a game plan and and then uh, just trying to execute as best we can to the game plan. And ideally uh, things will, will play out as, as we would like them to. And, and uh, certainly time will tell.
0: What uh, you know? I'm going to give you one more here before I send you down the river. But uh, what what is the difference mentally for for 2019, Jay Coughlin, from 1998, Jay Coughlin? Obviously, you've got championships and all the race wins. But if you if you look at that kid from 1998 and you look at the man that that I'm talking to now, that's in this this potential championship situation, what's the major difference between the two?
1: No, you know, it's, it's it's a very good question. I mean. Uh, I would say in 1998 I was much, much more, uh, fearless, if you will. Uh, you know, I've never really had anything to prove, uh, other than, you know, w- what our goals were set out to prove to ourselves. Uh, so I don't think a whole lot has changed there. I've certainly uh, matured quite a bit, uh, in age, uh, without question that, uh, also goes without saying, uh, but you know, if I were to look in the mirror, uh, you know in, in ninety eight and then again here in uh, nineteen uh see much of the same same person uh I'm probably quite a bit more laid back today than i was uh you know twenty plus years ago as far as uh behind the wheel i'm not maybe as as brash or aggressive uh as I used to be uh why i can't answer that so uh maybe this this interview will will spark that back up because we definitely <laughs> we need the uh we need that edge we need that that uh, competitive drive, and and uh, we need that fuel pretty quickly to uh, get us through these last two races. So,
0: good question, and and uh, I think it has
1: its purpose. Nice work.
0: All right, man. Well, hey, listen, I look forward to seeing you in Vegas uh, next weekend. I hope you enjoy some time uh, doing something uh, away from the drag strip, perhaps with the uh, with the family this weekend, and uh, we'll. Yep. Put the hammer down. One last thing I will say is that you're going to be part of the uh, NHRA SEMA breakfast called Pro Stock Confidential and I look forward to uh, continued grilling you on that panel with the likes of Erica and WJ, Greg mm-hmm. and Herb McCandless.
1: That sounds great. We're looking forward to that as well and uh,
0: appreciate the interview and hope our uh, listeners enjoy it as well. Thanks very much. Jay and the driver of the Jegs.com Elite Motorsports Chevy Camaro. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Great to talk to Jay Coughlin there, get some insight from the man they call the natural, one of the greatest NHRA competitors of all time, and a guy who was certainly in the thick of it when it comes down to this points chase in 2019. Next up, it is going to be Jack Beckman, the man who is just 70 points out of first place at Nitro Funny Car, seems to have a team that's maturing at the right time of the season, and as I understand it, he is in a very interesting location today. Jack Beckman, welcome back to the NHRA Insider Podcast, your second appearance on this illustrious show.
2: I am sitting on a bench in the Star Wars area of Disneyland and you saved my butt. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm uh you, you know, I'm not big into crowds and lines. Yesterday I got a rare chance to go surfing and kind of reset the the body, mind and soul there and then today is the taking it for the family day where the kids and the wife love Disneyland. Me, I'm not that big a fan, but I'm here and I'm going to have fun anyway. Damn
0: it! Well, <laughs> what was it, Chevy Chase's line? It's the hap, hap, happiest place. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So no, I'm not, I'm not big on crowds and lines, unless you know, unless it's at the drag races.
0: Hey, I, I totally 100% sympathize with you uh, on that front. I would say it's the happiest happiest place on earth, but really for you, I feel like the happiest place on earth would be that little podium at Pomona with a white hat in your head. So I want to talk about uh, the countdown chase so far, which has been uh, which has been interesting for you. Obviously, Maple Grove, a win, uh, a final round appearance in Charlotte, uh, a little bit of an earlier exit that I'm sure you would have wanted last weekend. And I want to I just want to go through kind of as you said. M- resetting the mind body and soul how are you dealing with uh with the ups and downs of this thing
2: well i think as a driver it's it's probably important not to have too thin a skin and i sometimes wish i had a bigger ego because i think it would be easier to deal with my shortcomings to give you an example uh first round at um st louis i lost to J.R. todd on a hole shot if i had driven better we would have won that round and not only would we have got the 20 points for the first round, we would have got a chance in the second round and on and on. In other words, me getting beat on a whole shot meant we didn't get a chance to get any points on Sunday. Uh, then I red light in the final round at Charlotte. If there's any silver lining, we weren't going to outrun Ike anyway. The problem is, by me doing that, I didn't give us a chance to see it. Yeah. And obviously, if I had the red-light virus, Robert must have caught it for me because he did the same <laughs> right, thing in Dallas. Right. right. Which... which realistically, is keeping this championship hope alive. And I feel for him. I mean, as much as we want to beat him and everybody else for the championship, as a driver, I feel for him. You, you you feel like you let your team down, you let your owner down, you let your sponsors down. And it's not that we went up to the starting line not caring. It's not that we went up there haphazard. It's that we care so much, and these moments are so big, that sometimes your brain just short circuits up there. And then um, I thought I drove fantastic first round at Dallas against Ron Caps, and then I come back up second round against Bob Taska, and I've got an 89 light to his 80 light, and they outran us. And you say, "Ah, oh, well, they outran us. But the reality is if I had the same light I had first round in the second round, we would have won that round. And we're not going to get too many more opportunities. We're three and a half rounds behind height. If you count Pomona as points and a half, which they're going to give, then there's the, the – potential of 10 rounds worth of points there and it means we've got to be four rounds better than height uh which means not only do we have to do phenomenal he has to stumble and they just really haven't been doing much of that lately Oh, oh and by the way the cars on our rear bumper are starting to stack up
0: yeah, it is it is a crazy situation and you know one of the things I wanted to ask you because you know funny cars we all know is the you know the wild west of staging the wild west of starting line stuff and I know that you guys all pay attention you know you all pay attention to kind of everybody's tendencies are you seeing people do things differently in this countdown are you finding yourself doing anything differently or is it simply just a maybe a, a slightly higher level that everybody's normally been on just the way up or are people actually actively changing up what they're doing you don't have to name names. I'm just curious.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. well, so people use a lot of sports idioms. You know, give it 110%. We're digging deep. And uh, here's the thing. I think we're more chess players than NFL linemen. In other words, even though our sport has this visceral feeling to the ears, the eyes, the the body, it it's more mental than physical. So if digging deep makes sense to me, A quarterback going late into the fourth quarter with a sprained wrist, and you just got to figure out a way to power through it. Um, As a race car driver, I'm strapped in a car pretty tight. I got to stare at some amber lights on the tree. I've got to push the right foot down and let go of the right hand. I've got to look out in front of the car and move the steering wheel left or right. And then if the car smokes the tires, I've got to move my right foot some. In other words, it's not incredibly physically demanding, it's unbelievably mentally demanding. I don't have an extra gear to go to. There's people that'll tell you, boy, under pressure situations, this person really seems to to find another gear. Well, my question is, what the hell happened the rest of the season? Where was that <laughs> right, gear? Right, you know, right. I, I, I try to be as good as I can be as often as I can be. And let me tell you, I make mistakes out there, but so does every driver. So, from here on out, I can't make any mistakes. Robert Height could probably still afford to make a mistake or two. He's got a three and a half round cushion we have a three and a half round deficit and unless he's planning on not showing up in vegas right. or or taking sunday off at pomona which i highly doubt um it means we've got to be near perfect so i don't know that i i think the only change in the countdown is this sudden conscious awareness that we're running out of race as an opportunity and that doesn't make you perform your best in fact that's what makes you tend to to choke up there. So you've almost got to go up to the starting line with the attitude like this doesn't matter, even though you know it matters a whole bunch.
0: You know, a question or a, what some of you just said, you said, you know, it's, it's time where the team has got to be near perfect. And at least from the outside looking in at your team, it would seem as though that now the, the team is in a place where you guys are almost to that level. I think, I think we've seen this team come along through the season. I think we've seen, you know, obviously a culmination of a lot of really hard work to start the countdown, the win in Maple Grove. But I feel like if that, is the, if that is the necessary order, which clearly it is, it would seem to me anyway, as an observer, that your team is poised to be able to rise to that.
2: I agree. I totally agree with everything you're saying. And, and I think if you ask John Medlin and Dean Antonelli, our crew chiefs, um, even though there's a trophy at all 18 of the regular season races, they looked at the big picture of winning the championship. In other words, we never went to a race saying "doesn't matter if we win this one." We always tried our best, but we had to play with some clutch discs. We had to work with our bell housing combination, and we had to work with the reduced track prep. We really we struggled with that for a while, uh, but I think those guys knew that even if we Looked like we were in a slump for a few of the regular season races. The long term goal of getting a competitive car for the last six races, really seven, because you want to be competitive by Indy, we've met and exceeded those goals. The problem is, as good as we've been, uh, Robert Height was leading us by 80 points going into the countdown. Yeah. We have actually closed ground on him, but he had the luxury of, of having, well, I shouldn't say luxury, they earned it. Yeah. They had a fantastic regular season. We had a good regular season, but they had a four-round lead on I'm sorry, that's not true. They had an eight-round lead on us going into the countdown. Yeah. They they reset it and cut it down to, uh, to two rounds, and then we took the lead, then Robert stretched it back, and right now we've got three and a half rounds. So we can't afford to go back and forth with him. We have to have us do great, and now because – they've also done good we have to have them stumble at least once to put us back in the championship chase
0: you know you mentioned something about you know the regular season and and kind of advancing the cause throughout that season and to me that comes down to like a real kind of alignment of vision that everybody on the team has to have certainly to believe in the leadership. So let's go to that element for a second, because in order for everybody to understand what the program is, there has to be a lot of good communication. And I guess I'm interested in the, what is the normal kind of levels of communication on the team between Dean Antonelli Guido, as, as most of us call them, um, and uh, John Medlin, who is, who is most directly in front of the crew kind of explaining what's going on, the reasoning why?
2: So, John Medlin would be the rock as the human being, the glue that holds a team together. He's your favorite uncle, right? <laughs> he's that type of personality. He's the guy that, that wouldn't ask you to go into battle for him, but you'd follow because he's John Medlin. The uh, problem is John, John's hearing is not real good anymore. He's actually gotten really good at reading lips, and you can imagine with all the noise around the track, also, John doesn't necessarily want the role as the de facto crew chief. He is totally comfortable. Yeah. Heck, I think he'd call himself an assistant crew chief if, 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 he, if he wanted to do that one day. So they both specialize in different areas. Uh, Guido is hard and fast into that computer, tracking the weather, looking at the engine data from the run before, going back and looking at past data. John's looking at hard parts on the car, rod bearings, pistons, then goes back and looks at his computer, then goes back and looks at runs from past tracks, and then they each voice an opinion, and at at some point, there's either a consensus or a compromise there. Uh, I think think if you had to call the balance of power, it's 52% to Guido, and I think John wants it that way. I think John is absolutely comfortable being the guy that voices his opinion, will give the tire pressure call on the starting line, will give the clutch weight call on the starting line, but ultimately Guido can say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's do this.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's an interesting dynamic, and it's cool because every to me, every one of those relationships works a little differently, like team to team, personality to personality. It is a different system that everybody works out. Obviously, some more successful than others, but but it's clear that uh, that, that Guido and 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 John have a great system worked out back and forth, and it's it's fun. It's fun, again, as an observer, it's fun to watch this stuff kind of work in a stew pot, and then all of a sudden you end up with a, you end up with a, really, good, a really good situation. Um, well, well, yeah, and you're talking about two people that spent a whole career over at John Force Racing. Yeah. We were lucky enough to
2: get Eric, or John Medlin over to us, actually on the Napa car, years and years and years ago. Then he went back to Forces. Then he came over and was my crew our co-crew chief on the Infinite Hero Car. Then he went back to Forces. <laughs> then he came back over, and, and he had been angling. Guido spent 23 years, his entire nitro career, over at John Force's. He is a student of the Austin Coil Drag Racing University and a disciple of John Force Racing. It was a very tough deal for him to pack his bags and come over to our shop, but Medlin wanted him there because they had worked well together in the past.
0: Yeah, no, and, and it makes it makes perfect sense. You bring up the uh, the Austin Coiled, you know, Drag Racing University. You're a guy who uh, you know is an instructor with the Frank Holly School and and teaches people, you know, the physical and mental kind of mechanics of this game. And I guess how often do you have to do call on your own teachings? I would say how often do you call on some of those tenets that you're giving to students in your own career?
2: Well, I, I used to love when when I was full time for for eight years at the Frank Holly School. In other words, the days there were classes, I taught. The days there weren't classes, I worked on the cars in the shop. And then when I, uh, around about 2007, when it became obvious that the traveling wasn't gonna afford me the opportunity to work there full time, we scheduled the classes around the NHRA tour. So I still taught all of them. So I'd go out and race on Sunday, fly back Sunday night, come into class and teach on Monday. And it just used to dawn on me every single class, Everything you're telling these beginning students to drive an eight-second super comp car well also applies to a three- or four-second top fuel or, or nitro funny car. You have to take this stuff to heart. So I, I redlit lit the last time I was in a race car in competition at, at Charlotte. So we go to Dallas. We qualify Friday. We qualify Saturday. Uh, my next run is going to be against Ron Caps in Sunday, eliminations and it's pretty much going to be a do or die for both of our teams i literally shut the tv off when i got back to the hotel room and i i just had a self-talk session with myself which i rarely ever do but i knew i was starting to get into my own head about my poor performance in the past and the goal was not to repeat that in other words let's not dwell on that let's figure out what to do better and let's let's apply that and that's exactly what we teach at the frank holly school
0: you are, you know, I know, you know, from our own personal conversations and stuff, and, and you've you've said it publicly. You're not a fan of the countdown situation, and uh, that is every every man, woman, and child has allowed their opinion. It's the uh, it's the format that we live in, so that's that's what we're doing. Have you ever seen one as manic as this one has been in terms of win a race, go out first round, win a race, go out first round? It just no,
2: no, yeah, nobody's running away with any category, and and, and I don't know that that's ever happened with four pro categories. Uh, somebody usually starts yeah. hitting their stride in the countdown, and and either closing the gap to first or distancing themselves. And you know, Steve Torrance threw away a twenty nine round lead during the countdown reset, and is still barely hanging on. He's got, I, I believe, two first round losses in the countdown. Uh, I, I want to clarify my position when I say I'm not a fan of the countdown. Uh, I understand it, yeah, and I think I think it's a good orcable philosophy, I think we need to change some things on it. They don't play the Super Bowl and reset the points at halftime and then make touchdowns worth 10 points and field goals worth 6. Right. Why do we need to modify the points on ours? Now, my proposal years ago was don't have a cutoff. There's no top 10 going into the countdown. And my reasoning for that I think is borne out several times. This year, Scott Palmer didn't make the top 10 in top fuel and has chosen to park his car for the majority of the countdown. Just cost yourself car count. So how about we race till Indy and then divide everybody's points by two or three or four, whatever you want to do to tighten them up. But somebody that's thoroughly dominated shouldn't have a 29-round lead turn into one round. If they stumble, they literally could not be a factor in the, in the championship anymore when in years past they would have already had it locked up. And I don't think any race should be worth more than any other race. Now, I understand the excitement it creates, but recognize that's artificial excitement coming from a sport that is literally the most visceral, physical, eye candy sport in the world.
0: Yeah, and its uh, I think the, those are two very logical, cogent points. I, I actually really dig the first part of that. The, the lack of a cutoff would be, I think, fascinating because, like you said, it's uh, – it is brutal for you know Terry McMillan. Thankfully, his uh, Emily Oil sponsorship you know carries him through twenty four races. But if it didn't, I I'd, I'd assume we would be down a second top fuel car, and he wouldn't uh, you know he wouldn't feel obligated to make the effort because he came just up short. So it is well, uh,
2: yeah yeah. And, and if Billy Torrance keeps screwing around, he's going to win himself a world championship for a car that sat out eight races in the regular season. That that's not a tenable situation. Uh, so keep in mind that. If you don't cut off at the top 10 for the countdown, then 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th are going to have to continue to race their butts off to stay in the top 10. But 11th and 12th have extra incentive because they can still race into there. Billy Torrance couldn't have taken eight races off and still been a viable candidate for the championship. He still could have finished in the top 10. He might have been able to finish in the top five, but he wasn't going to win the championship taking eight races off. But knowing that as long as you make it into 10th place, you're going to go into the countdown no worse than five and a half rounds out of first, gave them the option of playing that card and being a part-time team. Leah, Leah Pruitt took a race off. Mike Salinas took three races off. Three of your top ten top fuel cars missed races during the regular season.
0: Yeah, These again, these are numbers, and it's definitely, to me, you a know, critical issue that we... Build a system and can maintain a system where one you know we're obviously we obviously need car count that's that's no that's no uh shocking statement here we want to have eighteen to twenty cars eighteen to twenty two cars i'd say twenty two good cars a race would be would be epic um but at the same time, if you're going to grow that car count, I think it does become self defeating if you do the ten car cutoff. If you're if you're able to actually make progress and grow some car count and then lop it in half, really, when you get to where it counts the most, I think the end of end result of that is going to be negative.
2: Yeah, I don't even care if you divide by four, right? So, yeah, sure. so a guy a guy's a guy's got a ten round lead. Okay, at least he's still got a two and a half round lead, not not a one round lead. Robert Height was Oh, gosh, I think six and a half rounds out of second place going into the first countdown race and left not in the points sleep. That just doesn't seem equitable.
0: It's Well, especially if you're sitting where he is, right? I mean... Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting, and I think it's a healthy conversation to have. And I know uh, you know there have been some backroom discussions on making changes and stuff for next year. What they are specifically, I haven't been uh, privy to, but I know that there is some discussion about making edits, so to speak. Uh, let's see. I'm going to give you one more question so you can get back to you know fighting Ewoks or whatever you guys are doing out there in <laughs> Star Wars land. Waiting uh, in line, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, you have been. In a scenario where it's come down to these little tiny single-digit points at the end of a season, uh, I feel like I did, we had Jake, Jake Coffin was the other guest on the show, and Jag is 65 points out of first in Pro Stock, you being 70 out of first here in Nitro Funny Car. For me, the 65-point gap in Pro Stock seems way more difficult a bridge to cross than the 70 points in Funny Car. Do you foresee this thing coming down to qualifying points in the end, or do you foresee it someone over these next two races grabbing it by the throat?
2: Well, I don't know that the championship will come down to qualifying points, but but I'll guarantee you a couple of the top five positions will come down to qualifying points. You know, it used to be qualifying literally was tiebreaker points. Uh, a round was worth 200 points. Qualifying number one was worth 16 points. If you did that 13 times, you're offset a round. Then uh, they, they cut the points down. They, they, they divided them by 10. A round worth 20 points. Qualifying number one worth 8 points. Now, three times doing that offset the round one. Then they added the qualifying session bonus points. I'm not opposed to those. I think the proportion is entirely out of whack. I think our sport should be about defeating the car in the other lane. Qualifying is setting you up for race day. We shouldn't overly reward qualifying. I don't care if you go 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 for qualifying session points, but then make a round worth 50. But to answer your question... I don't have a crystal ball, so we have to assume it's going to be an enormous difference. We've done a good job with our car getting bonus points. The problem is force and height have done a phenomenal job, and they've actually, they've actually used that to offset a round versus where we are. So, yes, you could go back and win the whole thing on Sunday, but if we qualify first and Hyde qualifies second, we can't race him to the final. The most we could gain on him is one round. Yeah. If he gained eight points, us on us in qualifying, and, it, and that puts him, say, from, from 54 up to 62 points ahead of us. Well, in theory, that's a whole other round we'd have to win to offset that.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh it the math is intriguing, man, and as you well you well know, it's like it's the, the more compact this thing gets down, the more intriguing it gets. So hey Jack, I really appreciate you taking some time away, uh, especially that you're hanging out at the uh at Disneyland today. But thanks for chatting us up and I look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas and I wish you and the rest of the Infinite Hero Boys best of luck. I
2: will take that luck, Brian. Thanks and thanks for all the fans for tuning in. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thanks, Jack. Well, a wild scene there <laughs> at Disneyland for Jack Beckman. Thoroughly appreciate him taking the time out and thoroughly appreciate his candor and honesty as he always brings it. Anytime we have an interview with Jack, you know, you're going to hear something worth listening to. So here's the program. We have two races left on the season, as you well know, Las Vegas and Pomona, California. We're going to find out if either of these two drivers that we spoke to today can bridge the gap from where they are to where they want to be at the close of Sunday in Pomona. Both of these guys made for good guess because they were both cognizant of mistakes they had made in the countdown that could have cost them, but now they're trying to minimize the damage and they're trying to make up some ground. Neither of them are out of it, but both of them realize that the weight will fall at some point on their shoulders. This has been a fun NHRA Insider podcast to make with two of the best that have ever strapped into the seat, whether we're talking about Super comp Dragsters, Pro Stockers, Nitro Funny Cars, whatever else they've driven, they have been great at. Sincere thanks to our guest, Jay Coughlin, and to Jack Beckman, and sincere thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another NHRA Insider Satter podcast as we bear down and prepare for Las Vegas. Enjoy your week and enjoy a moment to catch your breath before we go full force at it for the last two races. Thanks everyone. We'll be back next time.